Pubcast. But the problem is when we do blame, we give our power away. Because if I'm unhappy about something and I'm convinced it's your fault, for example, can I control you? No, I can't control you. So I just put you in charge of my internal state. Welcome to the Liberated Healer podcast, where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your host, Gina, offering their wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hello. Hi, everybody. It is Gina Cavalier, and this is the Liberated Healer Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Fleet Mall on, and we're welcome to have you. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me, Gina. Oh, thanks for being with us today and sharing your story and your guidance. And we're going to be talking a lot about a little bit of your journey, which was very interesting, but also your book here, Radical Responsibility, which has traveled with me to several countries, actually, this year. And I really loved having it with me. So thank you. And so just to give some context for the viewers, can you tell us a little bit about the journey you're known for? And I know you had a big media story years and years ago, and a little bit about yourself, because it's pretty fascinating. Sure, I'll try to address that fairly briefly. I'm a baby boomer. I came of age in the 1950s and 60s. Grew up in a good family in the middle, in the Midwest of the U.S., but we had alcoholism in our family. And when I was very young, you never know which parent was going to show up, the Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde parent. And so that kind of created a lot of wounding and splitting. And at any rate, I arrived in adolescence with a big hole in my gut, classic angry young man, and just went headlong into the counterculture of that time and really to the extremes. At the same time, I was always a spiritual seeker. And before I could untangle all that, I earned my way into a long federal prison sentence for drug trafficking. But fortunately, by the time I arrived there, I had a lot of training. I'd been practicing meditation and being trained as a meditation teacher for 10 years. I'd gotten a master's degree in clinical psychology and psychotherapy. And so I arrived in prison with a lot of skills. And when I got locked up, I finally hit the wall and realized I really had to changed my life and I wasn't able to keep compartmentalizing. My life had been a mixed bag before I was involved in a lot of craziness. When I was locked up, the most devastating thing was my son was nine years old at the time, and then he was going to grow up without a dad. And originally I was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. So I pretty much thought my life as I'd known it was over. I was 35 and the paper the next morning said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. And I was actually facing potentially a life sentence. Fortunately, I just got 30. I later figured out because I was sentenced under the old law before 1987, you got a lot of good time with a longer sentence, which means if you stay out of trouble, you get time off, automatically have time off your sentence. So I I realized I'm 30. I didn't know that right away. It wasn't until I actually got to the prison and was there for probably four or five months before I figured all this out. I realized I would serve 18 and a half years on the 30 if I stayed out of trouble. That still felt like forever, obviously. And then it took about three years for my appeal to go through the courts. And on appeal, they knocked off one count, which reduced my aggregate sentence from 30 to 25. And then I knew I'd serve 14 and a half, which is what I did serve. I fortunately managed to stay out of trouble, which is not easy in prison. But I really dedicated those 14 years to transforming my life and serving in that community. And I did my time at a federal prison hospital, a maximum security federal prison hospital in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So there was a lot of suffering there. And I was able to do a lot of good while I was there. I started 
two national organizations while I was there, one to promote meditation throughout the prison system and the other to create hospice programs in prisons and jails. And we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world, as far as we know, there in that prison in 1987. And now in the U.S. alone, there's about 75 or 80 prison hospice programs as a result of that work. I got out in 99, and I really focused those 14 years. My day job was teaching school. I had a very active life. I taught school as my day job, and I was very involved in 12-step work, and I led a meditation group in a chapel, very involved in the hospice work. But when I wasn't doing that or working out, I was up in my room practicing, studying. So I led a very disciplined life and really trained myself. And I got out in 1999, and I've had nothing but opportunity ever since. So I'm very grateful for that. I've been able to travel the world serving and teaching and leading. And the organizations I started back then are flourishing and doing good work in the world. So yeah, I have a lot to be grateful for. And the radical responsibility model was really developed there because I realized quickly after arriving there that I could really end up in a bad way there. I might not survive at all. But even if I did, I could come out like many prisoners do, broken, bitter, angry. I didn't want to live that way while I was there. And I realized it was a very negative environment. Most people had a huge victim story. And uh, I just didn't want to live that way there. And I knew that I had to really embrace 200% ownership for having got myself into there and what I was going to do with it and what kind of life I could create for myself in there and beyond there if I survived. And so I really embrace this idea of radical ownership, radical responsibility. And it served me very well. It's based on that philosophy that I was able to do things you're not supposed to be able to do in prison. You're not supposed to be able to start national organizations from inside prison. And I was able to accomplish a lot. And I've been able to have a great life since. And it's really come down from really focusing on self-agency. And regardless of the circumstance I find myself in and whether I can see that I created it or whether it seemed like it just fell out of the sky, the primary question is, what am I going to do with it? And that's what really creates our future is that question of what we do, the choices and the actions we take. We have to do that in an environment of tremendous self-compassion because life can be very difficult in some circumstances, very difficult and some are very unjust. But nonetheless, here we are, whatever our situation is and our destiny is really going to be created by the choices we make and the actions we take. I've taken that focus in my life and it served me very well. Do you still have people that you communicate with in the early days when you were teaching that are still locked up? I'm not in touch with anybody who's still locked up. Through our organization, we're in touch with thousands of prisoners on a regular basis. But in terms of people I actually did time with, I'm not still in touch with any them who are still in, but I am in touch with people I did time with who are out now, and many of whom got out before I did. I have some good friends on the outside who've gotten out and were part of our meditation group there, part of other things I was doing, and they're all doing really well. When I was reading your book, I was going through a little bit of what I call my dark night of the soul as well. And I've had different tears like everyone else. But when I was reading your story, it helped me feel a little bit better about what I was currently going through. But you really had this giant dark night of the soul, potentially forever, leaving people behind. And what I read is you had to go to your spiritual teacher. You could have run, but your spiritual teacher helped guide you to give you advice to face up to it and how it changed you as a human these programs should have already have been there, like ability to practice mindful or calming techniques. So you really brought that to the federal prison system. Well, I played a role there. There have yeah. been others involved in that work, but I was in a county jail, which was really a hellhole of a place for seven months during my trial and sentencing. And that really was a kind of dark night of the soul experience. One, I was being prosecuted by the U.S. government. They play hardball and <laughs> That's a pretty rough situation, the U.S. versus you. 
I was in just a terrible, awful place, but primarily more than anything, I was dealing with facing the decisions I'd made and the impact I was having on my son and his mom. It was really a rough period, and I just kept practicing and trying to work, use everything I'd learned to work with my mind. But it was a very tough period. And then when I got to the federal prison where I did my time, because that place was such a place of suffering, they had 600 medical patients, 400 psychiatric patients. The AIDS crisis was just unfolding and the AIDS patients were being brought there from all the federal penitentiaries. And so there were men there dying of AIDS, but also of cancer and liver disease. And the first day I got there, I'm walking around the halls in this place, and I'm seeing men being wheeled around in wheelchairs who are emaciated from AIDS or cancer, who are paraplegic, quadriplegic, men who are blind being led around, men coming out of the psych ward doing the Thorazine two-step, over-medicated. It was just a, like a Fellini movie of suffering. You can imagine I arrived there caught up in the drama of my own situation, having just been sentenced to 30 years with no parole. But that really shook me out of it. And I realized I was in this place of tremendous suffering and I needed to start showing up and serving. And I had that influence from my spiritual teachers and my family. And so I just started showing up and serving and created a life of service and discipline for myself in there. And uh, the whole thing worked out to be good timing for transformation for me. And hopefully I benefited some other people along the way. It was a kind of having your back up against the wall situation. It was like choiceless at some point. Yeah. And you can speak about it in a way. And you have Buddhist background and a Zen background too. Can you just give us a little bit of information about the both and how they differ a little bit so people don't understand what kind of background that is? Zen is one form of Buddhism. And by the time I was in high school, really, in about 1966, I realized I was a Buddhist. I was raised Catholic. But when I first read some Buddhist texts, it was the first thing I read that really made any sense to me. I have a profound appreciation for all the great religious traditions today and spiritual traditions, but my DNA was clearly Buddhist the minute I recognized that, I knew that. And I grew up in a place where there wasn't a lot of interest in that. So I was just on my own reading books and it took a while before I met like-minded folks, but I did keep exploring it on my own. What happened though, in terms of how my path unfolded, I was completely ignoring the ethical foundations of Buddhism. And, you know, being an angry young person in that counterculture area, we just threw the rule book out. We rejected our parents' generation, just that it's all hypocrisy. And we just threw out the rule book and we're fighting our own way. And, of course, making all kinds of mistakes, right? Because it wasn't that everything of our of the previous generations was wrong. There may have been some real problematic <laughs> things and there may have been a lot of hypocrisy, but it doesn't mean everything they were doing was wrong or everything. There wasn't any wisdom there the to guide your life. But we just threw the book, at least I did, but a lot of us threw the book out, made a lot of messes, and that was choiceless as well. But at any rate, in terms of the Buddhist tradition, I was mostly interested in the meditation practices, the awareness, training the mind. I was always interested in psychology. So I focused on that part of it and gave short shrift to the ethical foundations of Buddhism, which are very clear. And drug trafficking is certainly not in alignment with that. And I had a lot of cognitive dissonance in my life because of my mixed up life, spending a lot of the year traveling with my teacher or deep meditation retreats and then other parts of the year in this crazy smuggler lifestyle. And I just self-medicated around that cognitive dissonance for years. And I knew it had to end, but before I could untangle it, I did manage to get myself into prison. But the basic practice in Buddhism is learning to work with your own mind, right? Having a practice to develop mindfulness and develop awareness and then learn to live a mindful, disciplined and compassionate life. And I practice deeply and continue to practice and teach in the Zen Buddhist tradition and in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And both of those are part of what's known as Mahayana Buddhism. 
which is focused on really putting others before oneself in a healthy way. And yeah. your motivation to attain liberation is to liberate all beings. So it's, it has a vast motivation. And stylistically, Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, Japanese Zen Buddhism may seem very different, but the core practices are very similar. Tibetan Buddhism has all the inner yogic traditions, but the basic meditation, whether you call it Zazen and in Zen or whether you call it Shamatha Vipassana in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it's very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And of course, here in the U.S., the dominant types of Buddhist practice that people run into, Tibetan Buddhism, very popular, Zen's very popular, and then also what's called Vipassana coming out of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. But the basic meditation practice across all those traditions is very similar. And it's basically learning to work with your own mind and learning to cultivate qualities like equanimity and awareness, loving kindness, compassion for others, and learning to self-regulate, learning how to manage your own nervous system and how to manage your own emotions and your own behavior. It's just becoming a disciplined human being with a focus on serving in life. As I was reading in your book, you were speaking that, especially federal prison, you can't really get away with much. And so having a program where it's somebody can dive into and teach him, I love this idea, this radical responsibility. And instead of taking, you have this whole distinction between ownership and blame. Can you describe that a little bit as well? Yeah, that's really important because we've all been fairly enculturated to believe that when something happens, somebody's got to be to blame, right? Somebody's going to take the fall. Somebody's got to be at fault. And we've all experienced enough blame in our lives and the attendant shame that comes along with that. So we almost naturally deflect blame, deflect it anywhere but here because I don't want to be blamed. And that's quite natural. And we shouldn't feel bad about that. We all have tender, vulnerable hearts. We've all been bruised in life. But the problem is when we do blame, we give our power away. Because if I'm unhappy about something and I'm convinced it's your fault, for example, can I control you? No, I can't control you. So I just put you in charge of my internal state. Mm -hmm. And we all do that all the time. We put people, places, things, situations in charge of our own internal state, whether it's to be happy or if I'm really happy and I'm convinced I'm happy because of something happening out there, what happens when that changes? Now I'm not happy anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, we usually don't worry about it if we're happy, but when we're unhappy, it's really clear. If I'm really unhappy about something and I'm convinced it's caused by somebody or something out there, I just put that someone or something in charge of my internal state and I gave away all my power. And because we've been kind of enculturated to blame, the idea of embracing personal responsibility, self-responsibility, ownership, it can often trigger us into self-blame, right? Then we think, okay, I'm going to blame myself, right? And that's not helpful either. We actually need to develop a foundation of self-compassion. And through contemplative practices, meditation practices, we can get in touch with that depth of our being. Underneath all the noise, with regular practice, we can drop beneath that noise into the depth of our being where we realize we're not broken. We don't need fixing all the lies we've heard our whole life that we're not enough. But if you buy that or have that, you might be enough. We realize it's all lies. And actually, we're pure, innately wise, intelligent, good human beings. And we're designed to thrive and grow and evolve, but our basic nature is unconditionally good. And so we need to get in touch with that and have that foundation and then have a lot of self-compassion. And then we can look at owning the things we can own, not to blame ourselves, but just to learn. So if I'm in a situation or a conflict or something I'm unhappy about, first, can I get honest and see, did I have anything to do with creating that mm -hmm. or allowing it or stumbling into it or being naive or not having good boundaries or Maybe I was people pleasing or 
Maybe I was ignoring or maybe I was being conflict avoidant or maybe I actually set it up or caused it or maybe I have some underlying unconscious things that are creating those situations. So I really look into all that, not to blame myself, but because if I can see how I got into a situation, I can learn how not to get into it and how to do something different. So it's only for the purpose of learning. And then there may be a situation where I can't see I had anything to do with it. Then at some point, and I again, I need to have compassion. It may be painful. It may be difficult. And I have a lot of compassion for myself. And then, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? What's the most creative way I can respond to move my life forward? In, in a beneficial way for myself and others. So it's about taking ownership. We take ownership of our contribution to things, not to blame ourselves, but just so we can learn. And then we take ownership for our choices because that's the only place we have any power. And it's normal. We're all going to find ourselves complaining or feeling victimized. And it's normal. We don't have to beat ourselves up about that. But how long do we want to stay there? How much energy do we want to spend doing that? because it's not going to do anything for us. And sometimes people go through some really rough stuff and they may need a lot of empathy and they may need validation. But at some point, if we don't get out of that mindset and start embracing choice, we're going to be very stuck. And people do get very stuck in their lives and develop a very strong kind of victim mindset and victim identity. And it's very understandable how it happens. And for me, I want to have compassion for everyone that finds themselves there. But my hope is that at some point they would find some way to start to let that go and say, okay, this was tough. Maybe it shouldn't have happened to anybody, but my life, my future is out there and it's going to depend on the choices I'm making now. So I better start embracing those choices and try to come up with the wisest choices I can to head in the best direction I can. So that's the idea. So ownership is not about blaming ourselves at all. It's not about blaming others, obviously. And it's certainly not about blaming victims. It's just about owning whatever we can own to move our lives forward and to focus whatever energy we have in a place where it can do the most good, which is within our, with our own choices, our own behaviors. And as we make those changes and those awarenesses and going through those things, people are watching us do that. And it's also helping them. So it's almost like a drop in a pond where people start to say, wow, they handled that situation really well. Or I've seen them the way that they shifted and brought us together Maybe I should look into that too. And so I think it actually, even when you're helping yourself, you're helping the tribe in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We can't control other people, but we can be a positive influence. No, no guarantee, but we can. What we're doing in the world does have influence. And also when we're not blaming other people, when we own our own stuff, we free them. Now they may stay there and be blaming us, but we're not in the game. We're not feeding that, right? And at some point they may go, oh, they're not continuing the game here. What am I going to do? I'm just spinning by myself. And at some point they might shift. So we're actually freeing other people uh, to find their own way into ownership and their own life and their own destiny by owning our own. The other thing I want to say that what this requires, requires a lot of self-compassion, but we also need to learn mind-body techniques for regulating our own nervous system. Because otherwise, we're just going to be bouncing around, driven around by the circumstances of our life. And we have such wonderful technology today. Everything we understand from all the great contemplative traditions, yogic traditions, indigenous traditions, but also current neuroscience and positive psychology and so forth. So we all have this autonomic nervous system that operates almost everything in our body. And it has two branches. One upregulates from alertness to stress to out and out panic or aggression and the other down regulates into relaxation and all the way to going, helping us go to sleep. And they're both operating all the time. And when we get emotionally triggered, we usually get very upregulated and stressed and it's off to the races, right? 
And so can we learn to be able to bring ourselves down mm -hmm. or can we bring it up? And the good thing is these are connected with the breath. When we breathe in, there's a slight activation of the sympathetic branch, which is the arousal upregulating branch. And when we breathe out, there's a slight activation of the parasympathetic or downregulating or relaxation response. So by learning to use the breath, instead of having the world be in charge of my physiological state, I can be in charge of it. And if I'm in charge of my physiological state, then I'm able to manage my emotional state and I'm able to manage my behaviors. And now I'm more in the driver's seat of my own life. I get into a self-leadership position with myself and my life. Otherwise, we all live in this space between our childhood conditioning that we had nothing to say about, but we're highly programmed. This is a supercomputer sitting on our shoulders and it's highly programmed. And some of the programming in there is very helpful and some of it's not so helpful. And we all got it before we were seven years old. And it's just our family legacy, the cultural legacy. And again, there's some good things in there and there's some stuff that's not so helpful. And then there's the adaptations we created as little kids just to stay safe and make sense. And some of those made sense then, but they don't make sense now. So we have all that. And then there's the world around us. And if we don't take ownership for navigating that and train ourselves to be awake and mindful and how to self-regulate, then we're just in there getting bounced around. And that's really not much of a way to lead a life where we think we're we're autonomous, free thinking, else walking around making this, but we're not. We're very mechanical. And stimulus A1 happens, we respond with B2 every time, right? Unless we wake up, right? So it's really important to learn some basic self-regulation skills, mindfulness training, breath regulation, these kind of things. And they can just change your life so quickly. One of the things people would never imagine that someone who spent 14 years in a federal prison would later be training correctional officers. But that's one of the primary things I do today. I train correctional officers. I train probation and parole officers. I train police. And I train them in these basic self-regulation skills. And they're just amazed because yeah. suddenly they're in charge of their own physiology and their own emotions. Whereas before they were just suffering. They work in very high stress situations. They're exposed to chronic stress and trauma constantly. And they're just suffering. And they suffer from all the stress-related ailments and suicidality and their health outcomes are terrible, but I give them a few simple tools and they go, oh, I don't have to let the world control me. Mm -hmm. I can exercise. I can put myself in the best place to handle my life with these very simple tools. I love it. That's what made me started to seek because I was suffering and you want to get off the rat ways. But when that switch happens, when you take that, I don't want to suffer anymore. And that all of a sudden, that's such a great day. And it changes your whole life trajectory. And it might take you a year or two years. To don't worry about the timing. It's just the journey. It just, as soon as that switch happens, I'm writing a book called Surviving Suicidal Ideation. And when you said the age seven, the age seven was when I first had my first suicidal ideation. I'm just trying to navigate this whole world and I'm very sensitive. But these tools are really, gosh, life-saving. And when you embrace them you can change in a minute or three seconds or five it's so quick that it's unbelievable how effective this stuff is that you're teaching and i love that you have heart mind in your name of your institute because can we just talk briefly about the heart intelligence as well because i think that we do talk about the supercomputer but sometimes the teachings for the heart are the last to come into play and what do you have to say about how to heal that wound or that heart space? The name of our institute is Heart Mind Institute. And I named it that because in, in the Buddhist tradition, when we talk about mind, we talk about it being here. And that doesn't mean we know what the brain's all about, but 
For example, in a lot of things, you talk about body, speech, and mind. And there are some bowing practices you do in different Buddhist traditions where you go here for body, here for speech, and then here for mind. So mind's always here. And in Sanskrit, the word is citta, C-I-T-T-A, citta. And so in the Mahayana tradition, you have the idea of bodhicitta. Bodhi means awake. So it means awakened heart mind, awakened heart mind. In Japanese, the word is shin. And my Zen name is Shinryu, uh, with Ryu is dragon, Shin is heart, mind. So we have the sense that the essential of mind and consciousness is here. Now, the brain is this incredibly powerful and important thing. We now know that there are neural, actually neural networks in the heart. There's also a neural network in the gut, in the biome. So sometimes we talk about there are three brains. Now, the one in the skull encapsulated brain is the most powerful in many ways. There's 1.1 trillion brain cells, 100 billion of those are the neurons that connect with each other and create the neural pathways that allow us to do all the amazing things we do. In comparison to 100 billion neurons, the one in the gut has about 100 million, so quite a bit less, and the one in the heart has fewer still. But on the other hand, certain sensitive people can see it and purely in photography and some other ways in which they can measure and detect the radiation from the different centers, energetic centers in the body. The one that radiates out the farthest from the body is the heart center. It's very powerful energy. And we connect the heart with the idea of emotion and tenderness and vulnerability and love. It's very much that. But it's also the seat of consciousness. Yeah. The brain is a supercomputer and allows us to function and do all the amazing things we can do. But the seat of the actual consciousness, or in other terms, even one soul, we don't use that kind of term in Buddhism because it implies too much of an identity. Mm-hmm. But something that is our essential nature is more related here. And with Heart Mind Institute, we feel like we really need to make a shift from the head to the heart. Like our society, we've become so disembodied. I have a friend that says mm-hmm. our bodies have been relegated in modern society to be nothing but brain taxis, just something to carry these brains around on. We're very visually auditorially oriented. We're overthinking everything. And so we're really up here in our heads a lot. And we ignore our body unless there's pain. And then, oh, yeah, I have a body, right? And so we've gotten disconnected from our hearts and from the earth. And we're leading lives that are being very destructive to the planet and so forth. So individually and collectively, we feel that we need to come back into the body. So we teach a lot of embodiment techniques. The approach to meditation we teach is a deeply embodied approach and reoccupying the body really at a profoundly deep level and then reconnecting with the heart through the body. And in doing so, we also reconnect with the earth. So that's what Heart Mind Institute is all about, is helping all of us do that to become more deeply embodied, more heart-centered, more resilient, and more earth-connected. Exactly what I was talking about. I've just been leaning into the heart kind of education lately. And it's opened up a whole new world for me because like you said, I've been spending a lot of time learning about mindfulness. And then I think I haven't fully realized the power of the heart energy. And so I really appreciate that. Um, I'm wondering if you would like to teach a quick little meditation for people at the end of this. Just yeah, we that. could do the brief, maybe three to five minutes, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that people would enjoy that kind of being in that space with you. So would you like to do that now? Sure. Okay, great. So I invite everyone to take a comfortable seat wherever you are. If you need to do this standing up or lying down or leaning against the back of a chair for support for any reason of physical limitations, please do what works for you. But if you are able to sit up relatively straight with a relatively upright, uplifted posture, extending the crown of your head towards the ceiling a little bit, 
and then letting your shoulders relax, letting your body relax, and just finding a comfortable seat in whatever kind of seating arrangement you have. And then for this, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes to begin with, although I generally teach eyes open meditation, but I'm going to invite you to close your eyes to begin with, which I think will be helpful in terms of really connecting with the body. So if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, please do. Otherwise, you could just lower the gaze looking down the bridge of your nose. So do what works for you. I'll also invite you to let your jaw relax and maybe let the lips be slightly parted, which allows breath to just move freely through the nose and mouth. And then gently begin bringing your attention to the body. And by that, I mean feeling the actual tactile physical sensations that make up the experience we call body. Body is just a word, it's a concept. There really is no such thing as body, but there is this lived experience we call body. And it's this lived experience of physical sensation. So just bringing your attention to whatever sensations you can notice and feel. It could be the sensations arising at the contact points between your chair and your body or between your clothing and your skin, the weight of your clothing, your feet in the ground, just whatever you can notice. And just cultivating a mind of curiosity and just to know ourselves as deeply as we can. Here we are in this life, you know, how we got here, what it all means, it's hard to say, the great mystery of life, but here we are and we're in this body makes sense to really know it as deeply as we can. So just slowing down for a minute and dropping in and what can I feel? What can I notice? How deeply can I experience my own body in this moment? Feeling the sensations arising and falling away with the passage of air across the nostrils and or parted lips with each in-breath and out-breath. feeling all the sensations from head to toe on the surface of the skin, which is one vast sensory organ from head to toe. Feeling the hair on your head, feeling your scalp, feeling sensations arising on any exposed skin surface areas related to the temperature of air in the room or any movement of the air in the room where you are. And if you find your attention wandering off or getting caught up in thinking, that's fine. The minute you notice that, just come back. Just let it go and come back. No reason to beat yourself up about that. That's completely counterproductive. Just come back and come back and drop in again and with deeper and deeper curiosity. What is my experience right now being alive in my body, this body, this physical experience? What is it? How deeply can I feel it? Then you're also invited to begin exploring the internal landscape of physical sensation. The inside of our body, the interior landscape of the body is a vast space of sensate experience. Our entire body is a living organism. It's all sensory, all the way down to the bones and including the bones. Even the bones contain neuronal cells connected to the central nervous system, as does the musculature, the connective tissue, all of our vital organs, circulatory system. The entire body is sensory. And if we slow down and drop in, we can feel it. 
we can feel the overall weight and mass of the muscles and bones. Perhaps we can find our heartbeat. Perhaps we notice some aches and pains or stiffness or discomfort and allowing ourselves just to feel whatever's there. Just being curious. Breath after breath, heartbeat after heartbeat, feeling into the body as deeply as we can. Developing a deep felt, deeply felt physical presence of the body, which anchors us in nowness. The more deeply we feel the body, the more that anchors us here in the present moment. Makes it a little bit more difficult for the mind to wander, easier for it to come back. Anchoring ourselves in this deeply felt physicality of the body, inside and out. In neurobiological terms, this is facilitating a shift from the default mode network of the brain, which is responsible for the very noisy part of our brain, to the task positive network, which allows the default mode network to go offline and the mind begins to settle, quiets down. We drop into the body and we start to really tap into an underlying beingness, a presence, a coherence, a flow, the depth of our own being. And the portal is the body. We go through the physicality of the body into subtler and subtler and subtler sensation and energy into very the nature of mind, being itself. And the portal is the body going ever deeper. So I would invite everyone to bring your awareness to your heart area for a moment. And just imagine with each breath, just let the breath be as it is, breathing in and out. But imagine you're breathing here at the heart. You're breathing in through the heart and out through the heart. And as you breathe in and out through the heart, you're awakening the energy of the heart. You're feeling a fullness here, a tenderness, vulnerability, joy, sadness, all mixed together. Our basic humanity, our capacity to feel. And as you breathe in, you can bring that heart energy into your whole body in a self-compassionate healing way. And as you breathe out, you can breathe that heart energy out to all beings for the benefit of all beings. And to finish our meditation, I invite us to take in a moment, not yet, but in a moment, we'll take three very deep breaths. First, filling up the belly and filling up the chest and taking as much air as we can and then releasing the breath through pursed lips like that. As we breathe in, imagine you're being saturated by light energy. Like you're breathing in not only through the heart, but through all the pores of your skin, you're just being saturated with light energy and then as you breathe out, you're releasing this back into the world. So let's take three very deep breaths in that way. Go ahead.
And with the third exhale, you can open your eyes. And with soft eyes, just look at the space around you and connect with the room where you are, wherever you are, and just appreciate this moment of being alive, the gift of life. Gift of life, gift of you, Mr. Dr. Fleet. Thank you. I really sending you so much love and appreciation for everything you've done. The hospice work to these human souls that are suffering what you've done for the people stuck in prisons and now educating our police officers and everybody else through your wonderful book. And I really loved your book. And like I said, it traveled with me to four different countries, radical responsibility. I saw so much energy when you were doing that and so much movement. I literally am on the verge of tears in the happiest of way, but it was very beautiful and calming. And I just appreciate your effort to help everybody in your time and energy to be with us today. So where can people find information about you? Then go to my basic website, fleetmall.com. It's a good place to start. But if you want to find out about my courses and the big online summits we do, we have a resilience summit happening now. We have an expanded states of consciousness summit coming up soon. HeartMind Institute, the website is heartmind.co or heartmind.co, co. And, and we'll link uh, everything below as well. Yeah. And if somebody wants to check out the book, it's radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And you can download a free chapter there at radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Thank you so much. Please, everybody, like, share, and subscribe. And we really appreciate your support and being a part of this community. And leave us any comments that you want or get a hold of me at gina at theliberatedhealer.com for more information or any questions that you might have or suggestions. And we thank you for your time today. Thank you, Dr. Fleet. Thank you, Gina. Bye for now, everybody. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support. Yes. Yeah.